0: James there's kind of these bookends and normally in pieces of ancient literature that tells you something if there are bookends you should take note and James's bookends in chapter 1 and chapter 5 are both about suffering he knows that Christians are going to suffer he knows his own people are suffering and I know as a pastor of a church that you guys are suffering In fact, probably one of the biggest things that I didn't expect when I got into this thing was just how much Christians suffer. And the reason that took me by surprise is because so often we look like this, right? We've got that painted on smile, that sickening, despicable Christian edifice. And so I didn't realize that much of my ministry would be sitting down with people who are Suffering, terminally ill Christians, and bereaved Christian parents who have just seen babies die or miscarry, embracing fully grown male Christians who can't stop crying in their grief. The amount of Christians I would lower into the ground for the last time. I didn't know that this was what life was going to be like as a pastor. And so I've had this front row seat to the suffering of God's people. And James knows that we'll suffer. And so he starts his letter, brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you suffer. And he ends his letter. Brothers and sisters, be patient in suffering. So I've been doing full-time ministry for it's my 10th year, and I've noticed something. I've noticed something in the constant interaction with people who are suffering. I've noticed that there's this secret that some Christians have. There's this secret that helps them to suffer well, that helps them to die well, that helps them to keep their faith strong in the midst of their pain. And the secret is exactly what James says in verse 7 and 8. Check it out with me. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm Because the Lord's coming is near. The secret to being patient in suffering, to suffering well, is to understand that restoration is coming. Restoration is coming. If you want to know the big picture story of the Bible, right, the the storyline from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God creates everything perfect, humanity falls into sin. Jesus comes and redeems his people and then finally comes again to restore all things. His restoration is full and complete. There is no second fall. There is no possible fall from grace. There is no more weeping or crying because the former things have passed away. Jesus wipes away every tear and recreates humanity and creation in perfection. And James says, if you want to suffer well, if you want to be patient in suffering, then know this. Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to restore all things. The Lord's coming is near. You need to be like a farmer who looks out on a freshly plowed field and it just looks like a mess. There's mud everywhere and the dirt's all churned up and and everything that's good is below the surface. The seeds are down deep and you can't see anything good but as the rains come... The seeds germinate, the seeds grow, and the fruit comes forth he says that 's what it 's like to be a suffering christian you 've got to be like a farmer you 've got to look you 've got to look to the day when God comes in the person of his Son to make all things right, to make all things new here 's the big idea: God wins. God wins, God triumphs over. Your suffering and my suffering. And so he says in verse 10 and 11, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Who have heard, You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He says, Think about the prophets. These were the guys that heard from God and were obedient to God and got put to death because of their faithfulness to God. And you know about Job? He was afflicted in every way. All of his possessions stolen, all of his children killed, all of his faculties marred by disease. And yet he remained faithful. He was patient because he knew and trusted in the ultimate sovereignty of God over all things. If you're going to suffer well, you need to know this. As Charles Spurgeon, I think, said, God measures out our sufferings like a good doctor measures out our medicine. There isn't a grain or a gram too much or too little. God has designed this for your good. And so we can be patient in suffering, knowing that a good God is behind it and a good God is going to deliver us from it. And that's why James, James, pragmatic, practical James, who always just gets straight to the point, very blunt, not very poetic, although he does love illustration, he just can't help himself. He spills over in exaltation and exaltation right at the end there. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the guy who's seen people imprisoned and killed and starving and impoverished. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And you take a survey of a bunch of Christians around the world today who are starving and imprisoned and impoverished and they will say the same thing. And it's the very thing that we doubt when we face suffering. He wants us to know, even in the midst of it, right even in the slog of it, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so... Christians who persevere in suffering, who are patient in suffering, see the world with the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith see God's faithfulness. The eyes of faith see God on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things, including these present sufferings. And so those people who trust in God and trust in God's goodness and sovereignty, his compassion and his care, these are the people who pray in response to suffering. These are the people, verse 13, that that James commends. Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Seems like good advice. Is any of you in trouble? Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. So I know for a fact, even though we, like, from person to person are sweeping it under the rug, I know that there are a lot of people in our church who are suffering greatly. We have people in our church who are here sitting every week who are terminally terminally ill. We've got people who are struggling, trying to have children and can't have them. We've got people who are struggling with Marriages breaking down around them. We've got great suffering in our midst. The question for you, I'm speaking to you, an individual, you right now. The question for you is when you suffer, not if, obviously, but when you suffer. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Who are you going to go to? If anyone among you is in trouble... Let them pray. I'll tell you what I do when I'm in trouble, when I'm suffering. I pray sometimes, and all the other times, I grumble. That's my default position. I grumble and I escape. Try to escape but the opposite of perseverance And patience and prayer But James says in verse 9 He says this Don't grumble against one another Brothers and sisters or you'll be judged The judge is standing at the door He's saying listen you need to know The judge is coming And that should not be a, a frightening thought For a Christian It's the same judge who is our restorer He's coming to make all things right, all things well. And so, he says, don't grumble. Don't let that be your response. You know that everything's about to turn for the good forever. And even if you suffer every day of your life, for all of your life, it's nothing but a heartbeat compared to the glory that's about to be revealed, as Paul says it that weight of glory that's going to outweigh everything that we face, not to diminish the reality of our suffering, but what is coming is going to overwhelm it. If this square right here is my life and it is full to the brim of suffering, then every square to the back of the room and then every square foot of land from here to Adelaide is eternity. And even then it doesn't capture the full The fullness of that reality and all of that is bliss. And so he says, Get get your eyes off your suffering. This is one thing that, that, that brings suffering people and depressed people and anxious people down. It causes us to zoom in like this square is my reality and it's all dark. And so James says, Lift up your eyes look to see the coming king. He's coming to restore all things. The judge is at the door. I think it was John Bunyan who told this story. You know, the tinker who wrote uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, the best-selling or mostly widely distributed book in human history after the Bible. He had a great way with words, obviously. And I think it was him who said, it was a dead guy anyway. So, Take all the dead guys, and I think it was that dead guy. He said this, a grumbling Christian is like a man who heard the news that he had received a large inheritance. And then on his way to collect the inheritance, his wagon broke down. And so he spent the rest of the walk to receiving the inheritance grumbling and saying, My wagon is broken, my wagon is broken, my wagon is broken. You get it? That would be a fool, right? You're about to get a billion dollar inheritance. Forget the wagon. And again, this isn't to diminish the reality of our suffering, it is real and it is visceral and it hurts. It's not worth comparing to the weight of glory That will be revealed to us So we're called not to grumble But to be prayerful And patient and persevering And so when it comes to prayer And I'm going to talk the rest of this time Pretty much is is going to be all about prayer And our prayerful response to suffering But the point here is not technique When we talk about prayer So often we're sidelined We're distracted by technique Technique it all, is almost... No, that's an overstatement. It, it doesn't deserve as much thought as we give it. It's not about te- technique. It's about attitude. This is not about the words you say. It's about the heart. It's about the heart that comes before God in prayer. And so, here's the point. Sometimes in the midst of our suffering when it has just gone on that little bit too long, or when it's just so intense and acute, we're not capable of great eloquence in our prayers for relief and for patience. We don't have the words to express the reality of our grief. And so sometimes we just need to groan. And there is a great difference between grumbling and groaning. Do you know that? Grumbling is, why is this happening to me? Why does this always happen to me? Why is my life so hard? Why doesn't God love me? That's groaning. That's grumbling. That's grumbling. Groaning is expressing heartfelt distress to a father who is full of compassion and mercy. So I remember, soon after my mum died, I just turned eight years old, we spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house, sleeping there. And I have vivid memories of sleeping in the music room, which was nearby the, the, um, the dining room, and of being woken up while it was still dark and just hearing the groans of my grandfather. And sometimes it was audible words and sometimes it was just groaning, groaning in petition and intercession. This is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. So, So the world itself is groaning because it knows how broken it is. Every earthquake, every hurricane, every tsunami is a groan. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. That's another great image for suffering, right? Childbirth. It's distress and pain and agony, but it brings forth something beautiful. The farmer going through all of that pain and agony and sweat and blood and tears, bringing forth a fruitful harvest. So it is with creation groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time, waiting to bring forth something beautiful. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. If anyone tells you that you are not a real Christian or that you lack faith because you are suffering, then they are speaking lies, blatant lies to you you need to turn to Romans chapter 8 and say well Paul says that even us the ones who have the first fruits of the spirit not fake Christians real Christians saved men and women made righteous by the blood of Christ even we grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies for this is this for this is in this hope we were saved Listen, we weren't saved in the hope that this life would be amazing, that we could have our best life now, right? You got sold the wrong product if you bought that one. Our hope, the hope that we were saved into, is the hope that is not, not, not the hope that is seen, the hope that's not seen. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what they already have? Morons. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The great encouragement for you, if you're at the point where you just can't pray anymore, there's hope for you later in this chapter about people coming and praying for you. But there's also this hope that you can just groan, the Spirit comes, he intercedes for you, he just translates that all, all that groaning, and God gets the point. The Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. Sometimes the weight is too great, and all we can do is <sighs> That's the reality of living in the now and the not yet. They're redeemed and they're not yet restored. And James says, we're to be patient and persevering and prayerful in the midst of these trials. Let's take Jesus as an example, right? All else fails, just see what Jesus did. You can never go wrong, okay? Jesus, the night before he's betrayed, the thing that we'll be focusing on on Monday, Thursday, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is so agitated, so overwhelmed, so fearful that his blood vessels are bursting, his sweating blood dripping from his skin. And it's not the crucifixion that has got him worried, although that's pain that even those of us who have given birth couldn't imagine. We invented a word for it. Excruciating means the Latin, out of the cross. Right? It's excruciating pain. That's not what's got him sweating blood. It is the thought that the sins of the world are going to be poured out on him, and the wrath of his own father is going to be unleashed on him. And this is what he does. Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray." He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup, that's a symbol of suffering, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is what James has told us. Beware of those times of temptation. You're not as strong as you think you are. You might be willing, but you're so weak. And so we need to know when we come into seasons of suffering, we're going to be weak. It's not going to be easy for us to have our first response be prayerfulness and perseverance and patience it's not john stott says and i think he's right that the battle for prayerfulness happens on the threshold of prayer what he means by that is it's not the idea of prayer that turns us off it's it's getting to the point where we're actually praying and he said, it's like, it's like coming to a big wall and inside the walled garden is God himself waiting to meet with us and Satan is, it, is standing in front of a little doorway. It's on the threshold to communion with God that we have to fight the battle. And so most of us, like Peter and like the sons of thunder, my favorite nickname for them, we're going we're to struggle with that. We're going to fall asleep, we're going to grumble, we're going to just want to escape. But by the Spirit of God working in us, we can follow Jesus' example of prayerfulness, even in the midst of great personal turmoil. So what do, what do I do when I suffer? What do I do when I face trouble? Is anyone among you facing trouble? James says, pray. He calls on John O. Smith tonight. When you face s- struggles and suffering and tribulation, pray. And he's saying that to each individual here tonight. If you claim the name of Jesus, he says, when you come across these times, and they will come if they're not yet with you, then let your response be prayerfulness. Which leads to patience, which leads to perseverance. Now, that's that's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. Now, what do we need to do? What does this church, right, this gathering of people, second time ever together, still getting to know each other, probably still having that fake edifice fixed to our face to make sure everyone thinks we're normal, right? Once that's broken down, and we can see the reality of our struggles. How are we going to respond to that? If it's true what I say, and you have to take my word for it, that every week is a suffering-saturated week when it comes to our church, then how are we going to respond to that? If we are a family and we hear that a brother or a sister is suffering, what do we do? James has got some advice for us, but this afternoon I thought I would ask my kids. So um, between services, I took the kids to the, a park and we hung out a little bit. And I said to India, uh, well, I asked them both, but Judah's advice was a little bit less legible. So I went with, with India's and, um, and, and she's six. And, and if you want more advice about this, she is willing to talk. In fact, she said to me this afternoon, dad, if you need me to preach, I can do that. And, um, and so I said, India, what do you think we should do if we find out that someone at church is sick or suffering? She's like, hmm, Um, and she really takes on the role of a consultant, she's like, this is a problem that I need her help with, right? And, um, And so she said, we should probably send someone to find out if they're okay, we should call someone and get them to pray for them, and we should ring the hospital and just find out if maybe they should come and give them some help. That's pretty good advice. Right, That's pretty comprehensive. We should have the human-to-human contact with them, finding out if they're okay, reassuring them of our love and our constancy. Um, We should send someone to pray for them. That's what we're going to talk about in a minute. And we should ring the hospital. There's nothing unspiritual about ringing the hospital, all right? So I think that's pretty good advice. And James is going to pick up most strongly on the second point there on calling people to pray for them, okay? So I'm going to read the last... Um, well, I'm going to read five verses for us now Towards the end of this passage I'm going to pull out five things I reckon that James is telling us To adopt as a church uh, Ways of, of helping people who are suffering and then, and then we're done All right. So he says verse 13 and following Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. All right, five things there. Actually, no, keep going. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. All right, five things. People are suffering. That's the reality. Can't sweep it under the carpet. What are we going to do about it? At at least five things, probably more. Number one, Verse 13, the first part of it, is anyone among you in trouble, let them pray. you in trouble? Pray. Our individual response and our corporate response should be one of prayer. What James has done throughout this letter is build a case. The God that he has painted a picture of, which is the same God from Genesis to Revelation, is a God who is absolutely sovereign over all things who is on the throne ruling and reigning over all times, places, and peoples. And it's that God who you can pray to if you are in trouble. We had a great question last week out of the Q&A, one of the text message questions. The question was, if God is as sovereign as James said he was in in chapter 4, remember James says, instead you ought to talk like this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that right? God is sovereign over life and death and everything that happens in life and death. And, she, and this person, he or she asked, if, if that is who God is, then why do we pray? If God is going to achieve everything, if all things happen according to the purpose of his will, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, then why pray? And my response to that is, if he's not that God, then why pray? Right? Right? The only God worth praying to is a God who can do something. If your God is the God who's up in heaven going, hands are tired here, guys. I I really, I I wish you the best. I'm going to send Jesus soon, I promise that everything will be good. If that's your God, first of all, that's a very small God, a very unbiblical God, and a God who is unable to do anything for you. If God is not sovereign, then why pray? But if God is ruling and reigning over all things and at the same time full of compassion and mercy, then yes, pray. Pray to that God, whether it's with words or with groans that he can discern by the Spirit's intercession. So let that be your response. If you're in trouble, pray. Then he says, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. This is so important for us. If it's true that there are heaps of people in our church suffering, then we need those of you who aren't in a season of suffering to sing for us. We need you to sing for us because we come in on Sunday morning and we don't feel like singing. And maybe we can't see God as being as glorious and majestic as he is. And so we need to see you lifting your hands and maybe doing a little dance and singing with big voice to remind us that that's who God is. I told a story this morning of the ministry of John Owen in the life of William Cooper. John Owen being one of the happiest, healthiest Singing Christians, there ever has been, and William Cooper being one of the sickest and most depressed Christians there's ever been. And uh, I'm not going to tell the story because I went over time this morning and I don't want to do that to you, but you just look up John Newton and William Cooper. There's a great uh, message on the website called Desiring God. It's by John Piper. You can get it in print or the audio message is even better. And he explains this. Um, very well. He's got one on the life of John Newton where he mentions Cooper, one on the life of Cooper where he mentions Newton, and it will be such medicine for your soul if you check that out, all right? So all I'm going to say now is just the truth that James says to us, we need you to sing. We need you to remind us that God is glorious and that God is good. So if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing. If you're sick, Call the elders. If you're sick, call the elders. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. I love this picture because it doesn't put all the pressure on the sick person to pray. Sometimes you're so sick you can't pray anymore. You're really just reduced to the groans. And so the beautiful picture here is that the elders of the church come in and pray for them. Step into their place and pray on their behalf. And I was so disappointed this past week when I was reading my heroes, Luther and Calvin, dead for 500 years, but some of the best commentators on the Bible, and both of them said this pattern of ministry was right and good in James's day and no longer has a place in our church today. And I just reread the passage and I was like, where does it say that? can't see that anywhere. Now, it might be true that anointing with oil was more of a tradition for that time and in that region of the world, but that doesn't matter. I'll tell you one thing. Jimmy and I, as the elders of our church, are not called enough into your bedrooms to anoint you with oil and to pray with you. And that's mainly our fault, and it's a little bit down to the pride of the people in the church that don't want to expose themselves to that kind of intimacy. But James says, if you're sick, call the elders. We believe in a plurality of elders, just as James did, and every New Testament church practiced, that there ought not be one guy up here, the senior pastor, the vicar who oversees everything. No, there should be a group of people overseeing the church. Jimmy and I are the elders at this point. We want to add more in the future and we want to be the kind of elders who obey James chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. If anyone's sick, call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The anointing of oil, I think, the way I read it is that it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the, the, the presence of the Spirit. So by anointing you with oil, there's no sort of magic in it, right? There's no, it's not like, a, like a, some kind of mystical, holy thing. It's just, here is a, here's an image, here's a, here's a parable, here's an analogy for you. This is what the Spirit is doing, even though you can't see it. The Spirit is with us, He is anointing you, we're asking Him to heal you. Now the tragedy of church history is that we've turned this into some kind of magic trick. right? So now you can buy you can buy magic oil. I think it's some, called something more holy, like consecrated oil, or something, holy oil. And James is just like, just go to the pantry and get the friggin' olive oil. It doesn't matter. It's not magic. It's not mystical. It's not holy. It's just a picture. It's a symbol. It's a sign. God is with us. It's not magic and it's not infallible. It's not always going to work. It's not a trick. And there's a reason it doesn't, uh, that James doesn't think it's going to work every time. He mentions it here. He says that they should pray in the name of the Lord. That's code for according to God's will. Je, you know, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. That, another way of saying that is, whatever you ask in accordance with God's will will be given to you. Pray in the name of the Lord. Pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. And so we pray, Lord, as as far as your will for this person be healed, give us the pleasure, give us the delight, give us the honor of being your means to bring about that healing in this time. And he says in verse 15, the Lord will raise them up. So it's not the elders raising them up by the power of their charisma or whatever. You can buy all kinds of trinkets from demonic televangelists. You know, take this hanky and wave it over your cancer patient and they'll be healed because I'm an anointed man of God. I was just about to swear. Thank you, Lord, for saving me from swearing. He's doing it slowly. He's doing it. The reason I was about to swear is because it it's so, it's so distorts our understanding of what's going on in prayer. It's not about the man. It's not about the elders. It's about the spirit signified in the oil at work in raising up that person who is sick or in need of healing. If anyone's ever told you that there is some kind of formula to to twist God's arm, to make him heal you, then you've been misled. It's all under God's sovereignty. And sometimes God says no. Often God says no. God has said no to me on countless occasions. And the reason I know that's not a reflection of my lack of faith or the sin in my life, or some kind of hurdle that I have to overcome, is that I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I see the Apostle Paul on his knees before God, begging him three times that he would remove this thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is. It might be cancer. It might be a person who's his enemy. It might be Satan himself. But he pleads with him, please heal me of this affliction. And what does God say? No. And if you want to accuse Paul of lacking faith, then be my guest. I wouldn't do it. The reason God said no to him is very clearly outlined for us. He said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to keep you weak so that you know that it's my power that's at work in your life. God has grace. Good, Fatherly Compassionate And merciful reasons For saying no I'm so far out of time But there's so much good in here I just want to can, can you give me just a couple of minutes Because I, I want to talk to you I want to talk to you about a, a point of Theology and some of you think This is boring but I think it's important so he says there in, and it's, it's not translated well, and that's why I want to speak to it so that we don't get the wrong idea. In our translation, he says that, um, what does he say? A prayer made in faith will make a sick person well. Verse 15, the, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. It's not a great translation. So from the original, it's a, a better translation would be, um, and the prayer of faith will make a sick person well, or the prayer of faith will save a sick person. And so the reason that, that distinction is important is because I think James here is talking about the extraordinary supernatural gift of faith that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think it's verse 6. He puts it right alongside the extraordinary supernatural gift of healing. And so all of us, all of our prayers are made in faith, right? We're not talking to the ceiling. All of our prayers are made in faith, but sometimes God is pleased to gift us with an extraordinary gift of faith that makes the prayer more efficacious. All of us have the common grace of faith. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have the grace of faith. You are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus. But there is this supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit called the gift of faith, And it happens to come upon people, in my experience, speaking to others, my own experience, it comes just at points in your life. I've never met anyone who just exercises this gift constantly, maybe apart from Jesus. That's another point of theology we won't get into. But two times in my life I've experienced this extraordinary gift of faith. I'll tell you about one of them, okay? Renee was pregnant with India, so first pregnancy, and she has a rare blood type and... um, some of you ladies know, you know, if you have a rare, a rare blood type, it's likely your child's going to have a more common blood type. And so the problem with that is that if any blood crosses over from mother to baby, the mother's blood will start making antibodies against the embryo and will start fighting against it. And so essentially, the, the woman will start going to battle against the baby. And it never happens. It's nothing to worry about because you just get injections constantly throughout the pregnancy. And it just, it, it, it takes care of it. So you don't have to worry about it. Unless you're Renee, for some reason, even though she had all of the injections and all of the appointments and all of the checkups, we get the news, this thing is happening. Your body is starting to fight against that precious little image of God. That didn't say it that way, but, but we knew it was. And so it was gut-wrenching for us to think that something was going on inside of her that was doing the very thing that we were hoping wouldn't happen. And so we went to, I think it was monthly checkups, maybe every two months. I think monthly, go to a checkup, have a test, find out that it's still happening, that the antibodies are growing in their number. Go to the next appointment same thing happens. We're praying throughout, probably grumbling at first, but then kind of praying about it. And, and every checkup, the same is true. It's still there. And now it's getting kind of dangerous. Your body is fighting that little embryo inside. It's dangerous. Damage can be done, brain damage or, or, or malformation of limbs and so on. And so I remember very clearly sitting on the couch in our house in Doncaster one hand in Renee's hand, one hand on her belly, on on India, and praying as I had countless times that God would heal this thing, that he would cleanse and purify and take away all of these antibodies that were growing in number. And I remember this time praying and being overwhelmed with assurance that she was healed, to the point where I said to her, you're, you're going to be okay. Which is a dumb thing to say, right? False sense of hope and false sense of security. And then we went to the final checkup. The final checkup before they have to do something about this thing. And they do the test and she's completely clear. And I get emotional thinking about it because that doesn't happen. There, there is no explanation for that. What I believe has happened in that and one other occurrence is that God gives me, by his mercy and grace, he gives me the gift of faith and I pray and she's healed. It's a gift. We ought to ask God for it. So that's why it says the prayer of faith will make a sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. God gets the glory. So if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing. If you're sick, call the elders in. If you're a sinner, confess your sin. Verse 15 and 16, he says, the second part of 15, he says, um, if they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I'll gloss over this because... That I'm out of time, but basically the, the idea here is that sin needs to be healed, just like sickness does. Sin causes ruptures in our relationships with one, of other, one another, and we can, when we confess it to one another, it heals relationships. It's the first step in healing. It also causes a, a disruption Not a breaking, but a disruption in our relationship with God. So confessing our sins to one another and to God heals relationship, heals faith in our own soul, and confessing sin can heal the body. It's a great error for someone to say to you, You're sick because you have unrepented of sin. That's what Job's friends told him, his so called friends. They were morons, all right? It wasn't because of sin that Job was suffering. However, there are occasions when our sickness is a result of sin. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about the abuses of the Lord's Supper. He says, because you guys are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and you're just abusing it, some of you are sick, some of you are dead because of your sin. And so sometimes, confessing sin will, as James says, heal us. The point is that we should be confessing our sins to one another. And again, this means, sorry, we're going to have to take off that mask and let each other in. I think the best environment for this is our small groups, but this is a small enough gathering for us to just start confessing to each other. It's the path to healing. So if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing. If you're sick, get the elders in. If you're a sinner, confess your sin And number five, which I'm not going to talk about, is that big problems, big suffering requires big prayers. And Elijah is our example in that. So there's James. It's a great book, it's a great encouragement and also a great conviction to us. Some of us feel pretty beaten up by James now, but James is a shepherd. And a shepherd not only feeds the sheep, but he pulls them into line when they start to stray. And some of us are straying sheep even tonight. And for those of us who are straying, for those of us who are wandering from the fold of God, how prone we are to do that. Those of us who are doing that need the rest of us to guide us back home. And so the ministry that you have tonight is to be the shepherd. The straying sheep. And that's what he says, the last two verses. Let me read them for you and then I'll pray. My brothers and sisters, that's all of you here tonight. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, please give us this ministry. Give us the ministry of prayerfulness. Give us the ministry of faith and of healing and of confession. Please give us the beautiful picture of ministry that James has painted in these five chapters. And give us the ministry of gently, gently ushering wandering sheep back to the fold of God. And help us to know that as we do that, we get to participate on what you're doing, saving people from death and covering over a multitude of sin. I pray that this church would be a great place of healing. In Jesus' name, amen.